Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is CBS News correspondent and 60 Minutes contributor Byron Pitts. Byron, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. In your book, Step Out on Nothing, you tell the painful story of realizing you didn't know how to read. When did you first realize that you had a problem? I knew early on, probably grade school, probably third or fourth grade, because I remember there were kids. There's a girl in my class named Pauline Tobias, smartest person on earth to me. And and I was struck by how much she enjoyed reading and how well she read. I thought, well, damn, how is she so good at it? I'm so bad at it. So early on, I knew that I was uh, something was wrong. You give a great deal of credit to your mother, Clarice, in yeah. in raising you and, and helping you to read. Um, she made London Fog raincoats and then uh, graduated from college and became a social worker. Yeah. She died last December. Yes, December you, 14th. You describe in your book a lot of contact, a lot of affection, a lot of stern discipline. How has your opinion of her changed over the years? Mm. Great question, and, and thank you for mentioning her. I, I always appreciate uh, when people say her name out loud that allows her to stay alive, Clarice Pitts. You know, my mother, when I was a child, was my superhero, right? I mean, she was Catwoman. She was Batman. She was everything to me. And certainly, like for a lot of young people, when I went to college, our relationship became strained. When I went on and began my professional life, strained for different reasons, marriage, uh, raising children. The older I get, the more I admire her. Um, certainly her clarity of purpose as a parent. Uh, my mother, almost like, like a great you know, general, never showed fear, never showed doubt. Though I, I can only imagine now she was filled with it uh, because of – I mean she was a woman born and raised in the Jim Crow South. I remember she encouraged me to go to Ohio Wesleyan, a predominantly white school versus an HBCU, historically black college. And my mother uh, was very proud of who she was, wanted me to be very proud of who I am, be proud to be an African-American man. And if it was my choice to go to an HBCU, great. But she wanted me to consider, based on who I was and what I, uh, the path she thought I was on, she wanted me to, to be in a different setting, potentially, because she thought there were hard lessons about life that I could learn in a clearer fashion in that environment versus going someplace else. And then I remember when my mother, my mother, uh, as we've mentioned, passed away December 14th. She died. She took her last breath at 4 a.m. in the morning, surrounded by her children and her siblings. And uh, we were singing to her and, and uh, reciting her favorite scripture. And it was, may we all be so fortunate to go in that way. And, you know, I discovered something late in her life I hadn't seen before, and it was fear, that my mother, I'm sure like a lot of people, uh, was afraid of dying. Not in – certainly as, as a Christian woman, she, she believed deeply that she would go to heaven, and then if we live godly lives, we'll, we'll be together again. So not afraid in that, but afraid in, 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 in the pain that comes with death. And that was for, for me and for my siblings – the first time we'd ever seen our mother show anything remotely close to fear. It was surprising. On some levels, it was momentarily disappointing, right? Because this woman was superwoman to us. 
but then it was uh, at the end. It was what was so great about my mother is that she was she spoke truth. She lived truth. And I think even allowing us to see that fear and, and to discuss it openly uh, was one last powerful lesson for her children that um, in many ways and for many people, death is a frightening thing. And, uh, uh, and it takes a lifetime to get ready for it, I guess. Uh, this is a woman who at different times in my life worked multiple jobs. Uh, this is a woman who I'm sure at different times in my upbringing qualify for welfare but refuse to accept it and, and, and not looking down at her nose at the people who were forced to make or, or, or made that choice. But it's like that's not how we're going to do it. And so you felt like like a good general, a good leader, if she was all in, if you knew she was given every single thing she had to this family, then you better at least do the same. Now, it's natural for a mother to – support her child in a variety of ways um, and to try to raise him or her in the best possible way. But in this book, you talk about a a number of other people Mm -hmm. who helped you in crucial ways. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, what do you think it was about yourself that led people to do that? Mm. It's a good question. If I can say one other thing about my mother before I get sure. to that question. about I think that you're right that all parents do that. But I want to believe – I believe that my mother, like a number of parents, moms and dads, uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles, was extraordinary in her giving. Like little things. Like my mother, the most she ever made as a social worker was $10,000 a year before taxes. And I went to an all-boys Catholic high school where the tuition – was about $990, nearly a tenth of her uh, salary. But to answer your question, one of the remarkable um, blessings of my life is that so many people have been willing to help me out, to contribute to my life. And I'm sure all of us have those stories of people who helped us. I, I think in many instances, as I've gotten to know these people uh, as an adult, they all have their own stories of struggle. I mentioned, you know, in the book Ula Luz, my college professor. This is a this is a child from Estonia, a country ravaged during World War II. She was spent part of her life in refugee camps. She knew something about struggle. You know, I think of my college professor, Dr. Robinson, who was an, uh, by any standard sort of an old crusty guy and politically incorrect on a campus where political correctness was was certainly in vogue, probably right of center politically which didn't necessarily put him in good stand with all of his colleagues at the university. But he was exactly the person I needed, his sort of tough love approach. Um, James Mack, uh, a deacon in my church, um, a man who uh, raised daughters, didn't have any sons, but embraced a lot of young boys uh, from the city to help them uh, lead their lives. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I I think when I've talked to all of them, they say, you know, they all say in different ways that they saw a kid who they thought had a good heart and a kid who they thought didn't necessarily have a lot of advantages but was willing to work hard. And you also mentioned your roommate, um, Peter. Peter Hulfing. Who has unfortunately also died. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was happening there? A white kid from Minnesota. Exactly. Peter Hulfing from Minnetonka, Minnesota. Pete told me that his mother, uh, when Pete was – his dad was a very successful accountant a large accounting firm based in Minneapolis, based in Minnetonka. 
And uh, his mother, being a forward-thinking woman, I think bought either bought their house either a subscription to either Jet Magazine or Ebony Magazine, you know, two magazines that target an African American audience. And so his mother thought this would be sort of her way to expose you know her kid to the world. There's you know on the counter there there's National Geographic and there's Jet Magazine. God bless her, um, sweet woman. Uh, both of Pete's, Pete's parents. And Pete was a guy uh, – what I love about Pete in my life and the story – what I think is so relevant for many of us is that you know, so oftentimes we think in order to help someone, we've got to reach down to help someone. Sometimes helping someone means just reaching across. I mean Pete and I were peers, both freshmen in college. I was 17. He was 18. I had my own issues being an African-American student in a predominantly white campus in Ohio. I'm from the East Coast. Pete, by his own description, is kind of socially awkward – for lack of a better description, kind of a, a geek. You know, he was a botany major, a science major, felt more comfortable with plants and textbooks than with certainly with girls in college at that time. And he did go on to get a PhD. He did. He did. Had a brilliant, brilliant career uh, in cancer research. And, um, you know, and I, I think Pete was, because Pete had his own issues adjusting to college, he recognized that I was having issues adjusting to college. Pete's great strength was his mind, his academic prowess. One of my great weaknesses were my academic struggles. And Pete thought, okay, no skin off my nose. I can – here's this thing I can share to him as his friend. I think Pete uh, – we, we like that Pete's father used to always send him um, – would send uh, Pete a check, I think at least once a month. And in it was a letter to Pete. So Pete would – and, I, and I, it was the most amazing thing because my mama never sent me a check while I was in college, right? And um, so at one point, Pete would let me open up the envelope just so I could look at the check, see how much it was. And I thought, how cool was that, that your parents actually send you money while you're in school? Like that was just a foreign concept to me. And uh, I mean though my mother would send a dollar or $20 here if she could, but never a check with zeros behind it. And, but at some point, we got to a place where Pete loved – because my mother wrote me a letter every week I was in college. For I mean, just think about that. Every year for four years, once a week, my, I would get a letter from my mother. And, uh, and her letters were filled with scriptures and her favorite author was Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. So she sent me that entire book a couple of pages at a time while I was in school. And so I, I think I gave Pete that – uh, sort of family grounding, that that spiritual motivation I got from my mom. I think Pete benefited from that. But he, again, saw someone who needed his help, and he had skills that I needed. You you mentioned um, that your mother had identified Ohio Wesleyan mm-hmm. as a possible school. Why Ohio Wesleyan? Well, Norman Vincent Peale had gone to Ohio Wesleyan. Oh, I didn't realize it's that. It's true. He's, Peale, is, Peale is an Owu man. And uh, my mother, you know, this is true in many places, certainly in the South and certainly in the homes of African-Americans in the South. You'd often find plates on the living room wall. And on one plate, there's JFK, another plate, there's Jesus Christ, and another plate, there's Martin Luther King. Well, if my mama could have had a fourth plate, it would have been a Norman Vincent Peale. She thought so highly of him and his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Because something I've discovered about my mother is that she was an incredibly optimistic woman. When 
the life she lived didn't necessarily suggest she had reason to be optimistic. So I think she she loved his book. And I I read uh, Dr. Peel's book at least once a year now. And it is – and he wrote the book in the 1950s. And that book is as relevant today as it was the day, day it was published. So she had great affection for him and thought if it worked for Peel, it's a good place. Even though I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, I was kind of a small-town kid. Uh, my life was school, my church. My summers were in North Carolina, in Apex, North Carolina. So I couldn't – you know, so we – we all knew that a big environment like you know, like Indiana, this I, I could I probably might not have functioned well in, in a space this big. So Ohio Wesleyan, twenty three hundred students was a, a a more comfortable space for me. We both knew there was value in me going away to school because uh, I'm a mama's boy, and I think we both needed to see if I could manage beyond her her apron because prior to that time, till I went to college, I was you know. If you saw me, you knew my mother was either on her way or just left. You played football at Ohio Wesleyan. Yes. Um, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, humility because we weren't very good when I was there, <laughs> right? We never had – I remember we were playing Baldwin-Wallace my sophomore year. I think it was my sophomore year. And uh, I got knocked out just before halftime. And when before I went to the locker room, I think we were down by like 10 points. When I – Came, got my act together and came out for the second half, not to play, but just to see the rest of the game. It was like 56 to 10 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we were not very good. And that was um, uh, so many of the positive lessons I learned in life, I learned in athletics, more so in Little League and high school because we were very successful at that level. And there are wonderful lessons to learn by winning, but they're powerful lessons. One can argue equally powerful, if not more powerful, lessons to learn by losing. And so playing college football um, and losing as badly and as often as we did was tough. And I actually lost my love for football during that, that time for, for a, a variety of reasons. But, yeah, it, it, you learn humility. I had, had a great line a couple of years ago. I covered John Edwards, former senator of North Carolina, his first bid for president. Now, to show you how insightful I am about politics, someone asked me once to describe John Edwards having covered him for a campaign season. And I said, oh, John Edwards is Bill Clinton without the moral baggage. That was my description. Incredibly charismatic, the Southern charm. He could create those head nod moments in an audience, an audience of 5,000. You felt like he was talking to you. Good looking, all those things. Well, and I'm not throwing stones. As a, as a pastor friend of mine would say, we all have skeletons in our closet and some still have meat on the bone, Right. But with that said, um, I, I met up with a friend of his who I had met the first time he ran for president, and I saw him again later on. And I asked him. He wasn't working with uh, Senator Edwards, his second bit for president. I was like, so what's – you guys were boys. What's up? He says, well, you know, says, Brian, all I'm going to say is this. He said there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are humble and those who will be humbled. Interesting. And then a year later, the world changes for him. Um, so, so playing ball at Ohio Wesleyan, I, I learned what it meant to be humble. When did you decide to become a journalist? Early on, I think certainly in high school. I, I worked for my high school newspaper as a sports writer, and I remember seeing I remember seeing my byline in the uh, you know in the school paper, and I remember being in the cafeteria. And to that point, people it was a small all boys school. Most people knew me as an athlete. There are only nine African-American students in otherwise school made up of Irish, 
Italian and Polish kids. So you kind of stood out anyway. But but most people just sort of knew me as a quiet kid and an athlete. And, you know, that was sort of the extent of the conversation. But to be in a space in the cafeteria and watching people read something I'd written and seeing their reaction, hearing their reaction, hearing people pick up on things that I thought weren't even sort of a significant part of the story, but they focused in on that. Or those who maybe got a point I was trying to make was just fascinating to me. To see that you could be relevant in people's lives based on words you put on a piece of paper, that interests me. I think my mother and our church were engaged in the civil rights movement. This is late 60s, right, in, in Baltimore. And I remember my mother in particular was, was – and, and, and we've never even sort of discussed why that was because she was very much a traditional woman in many ways. Why she would be so engaged in that and why she would take her kids, her children. She took us every place to civil rights rallies and the bars. But uh, I remember uh, when we would go to rallies and the media was there, the police would behave one way. If we went to a rally and there were no journalists, oh, Lord, it could be – you knew then. It could be deep in the heart of Alabama. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Someone was going to bleed if there were no journalists there. And it's kind of like – it's kind of how it was. So as, as, a, as a young child, I saw the influence journalists had and from my perspective for good to, to keep the powerful accountable. And that was a powerful lesson for me as a child to see that. So I saw journalism as honorable work. I saw it as, as a community service. And I saw it as something that I could do because, you know, with my early issues with literacy and speech, I love words. Even when my stuttering was still a, an obstacle for me, I, I, I love to read. I love words. So I think, like, wow, I could do something that I love to do to read and to write. And I can provide this service for people, like I can protect people from people who would harm them in some way. That's, that's honorable work. As a, as a person of faith, um, believing that all of us are here for a reason, all of us are given a particular set of skills, do a particular job, I thought, okay, this is, this, is, this is my gift from God and this is how I'm supposed to apply it. Now, my grandmother hoped I'd be a minister, so she, she died disappointed. By the time I finished high school, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I thought a print journalist coming out of high school. But I got to college and quickly realized that my skill set, my view of the world, that broadcast journalism was a better route for me. But yeah, I, I knew early on. Like people say, what was your plan B? Didn't have one. Go hungry. Be a journalist or go hungry. Those are my options. Let's pause here now to um, listen to some music. You've chosen a gospel piece called Let It Rain. Why? Yeah. Open the floodgates of heaven. Let it rain. You know, I, I think about my life, think about my mother's life and how I was raised, that faith is so important for me. And as you know, faith is, is an important part of many lives of citizens in our great nation. And, uh, and, and so people of faith can appreciate this. The song talks about how there are just times in your life when it's just things aren't going well and you got no place to turn and you just want to close your eyes, go outside, Open your arms up to heaven and ask God to shower his love, shower his grace on you. Open the floodgates of heaven. Let it rain. And oftentimes, like many people, I feel that way. Cry out 
Let It Rain, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Chief CBS National Correspondent Byron Pitts. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Your first job was at a black newspaper. Then you were sports information director at Shaw University. What did you learn from those two positions? That I wasn't as good as I thought I was coming out of college. <laughs> the, the first job in Greenville, North Carolina, I was making $8,600 a year before taxes. And I got the job as the weekend sportscaster because you got to think an extra 20 bucks for doing that job. And I thought, you know, I played college football, wrestled. I know sports. Didn't know jack about sports. I knew about football. I didn't know about the other sports. And I wasn't very good at reading teleprompter, uh, which is another skill you have to have. <laughs> don't, we don't have to do that on yeah. radio. So I was terrible. But it was a great experience. I mean it was Greenville, North Carolina and Pitt County in eastern North Carolina. Rural community. There's a Flukure Tobacco Festival, which was huge back then. Regular folk. You know, you see a lot of overalls. People, you know, work with their hands. Wonderful environment. Great place to learn as a young journalist. And then uh, the, my first job was at the Carolinian newspaper, a weekly black newspaper. It's the first, only place I could get a job. Humbling experience that I walk in, you know, because I've taken a copy editing class at college and I knew what a copy editor was supposed to do. And so I go in and uh, first week they put me on the copy desk. Great. And they have me mark up the paper. And I mark this paper up good. My professor, Vern Edwards, would have been proud of me. So I send it, I send it back to be corrected. And the publisher comes to me and says, boy, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I said, sir, I'm thinking I've done a good thing. I said, well, you know, this, this, I thought this headline could be stronger. I thought some of these, these titles didn't quite fit. There were some grammatical errors I corrected, some factual things I researched and saw this was better. And I sat back in my chair waiting for him to praise me. And he says, boy, you know how much money it's going to cost me to make all these corrections you think we got to make? <laughs> he says, as long as we can't be sued, let it go through. And it was, it was a wonderful lesson about the real world, about small business or about business in general, that part of your calculation uh, needs to be the bottom line, the expense of things. And it was also a humbling experience being there. You know, we used to go out um, – the, the, the newspaper when I was there couldn't afford – and it's, it's doing gangbusters now. They couldn't afford no, notebooks or pens. So one of my favorite assignments would be to go to a person's funeral, person of note, their funeral. Because there, there was always a program and the funeral home always had pens. So I get a fistful of pens. I grab several programs <laughs> – that deceased person. And then so that would carry me for a couple of weeks. I could go to any uh, spot news, fire, murder scene, opening of a building, and I would have my pens from you know Johnson's funeral home, and I'd have Al Smith's funeral program. That was my notebook. 
Uh, and I remember showing up with the big-time reporters from Raleigh, like the Capitol Hill reporting. They're fancy notebooks and they're really nice pens. And I would, I would kind of keep my – in my jacket. Uh, I, I developed a good skill of being able to recall uh, – it's, it's probably the same skills that waiters learn, to take an order without writing it down. Because I was so ashamed of having this, this obituary in my pocket as my notebook that I wouldn't want to take it out unless I had to. So I would just uh, you know, listen and remember the vital facts until I got to the car, got outside, and I could write them in my, on the back of my program. Great experience. You then got back into television in Greenville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. WNCT. Yeah. How did you get that job? Great story of the value of persistence. I had applied, like a lot of kids out of college, I had applied to 100 TV stations around the country, the shotgun approach, looking for a job. And uh, probably 40 of them were nice enough to write me back. Of those 40, maybe 10 actually sent the tape back that I had sent, nice of them, because I needed the tape to send someplace else, my audition tape. And all 40 letters, the theme was basically different variations of you suck, you're not ready, you have no future in this business. And one of the stations I sent a a tape to was WNCT-TV in Greenville, North Carolina because my mother lived in North Carolina. It was not too far from home. So I sent a tape there and a guy said, no, didn't want me. So I I went back, interned at the station I had been interning at and uh, photographer – uh, this guy Eddie Barber became another one of those people who just reached out and 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 just you know loved me and helped me and he and a uh, reporter named uh, Larry Stogner, dean of television in, in the Raleigh market, and I became their intern, palling around with them. So this next time, uh, I sent out my tape. No, before that, I, I asked my friend Eddie, the photographer who'd worked there, to call the guy and say, "Hey, you know this kid sent you a tape. What you think?" And he said, "Look, man." Tell that kid he's got no future. I mean, he doesn't write well. He sounds funny. He looks funny. I mean, really, he should do something else. Eddie told me, okay. They have another job opening. One of the things I learned from my mother is uh, no only means not right now, right? No is never a permanent state. So I, I, I didn't have a new tape to send, so I sent the exact same tape. But this time I had Larry Stogner big-time reporter to call the news director personally and say, hey, this is a good kid. He works really hard. Give him a chance. I get a phone call. Hey, Byron. I won't give you the person's name. Hey, Byron, this is so-and-so. Yes, sir. Man, I saw your tape. You've got real promise. This is the same guy who doesn't know that I know that he said I sucked six months earlier. And he'd probably forgotten he'd even said that. And I got the job in Greenville. I never told him that story. He he passed away, and I, I never... He, he went to his grave not knowing. Interrupting the narrative a little bit here, but one of the interesting things about your your book is that you call out a number of people, mm-hmm. change the names mm-hmm. or don't mention the names. Mm-hmm. Have you worried at all that, that this could haunt you at some point? Haunt me how? Somebody that had said bad things about you mm-hmm. or said you didn't belong in, mm-hmm. in journalism – would uh, limit your possibility to continue your career? Oh, that's, good. that's a great question. That thought hadn't crossed my mind. I, I certainly – like in the case where I changed names, I didn't want to, if not embarrass that person, embarrass their families and didn't really want to embarrass them. In, in some ways, my mom, I was more thinking of like of my mom and wanting to sort of honor her journey. For all the people like, – I remember there were people who told my mother that 
you are just wasting. Like, why are you spending so much money sending this boy to Catholic school? Why do you go to all of his ball games? You don't have to do that. Why do you do, do all these things? I remember I, 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 there's a sportscaster I, I mentioned in the book who was disrespectful to my mother at at an event, and I sort of felt like I needed to give, I needed to to honor her struggle at every place that I could. And so all the people they didn't just tell me no, they told her no, and I wanted to sort of in her defense say you were wrong, she was right. Yeah, and so I think it's important sometimes to point out to people, not in a nasty way, but to point out to people who were wrong, who because you know, all of us at some point have influence and can impact someone's lives. And these are all people, in my estimation, who were unnecessary in their criticism. Uh, I mean, criticism is a, is a good thing. I mean, certainly my mother was critical, but they were almost harmful. And and I, I thought there was value in – I mean most of them, I think, if any of them read the book, they they saw themselves. I, I certainly didn't think that they were they, – any of them were in the position to hurt me from the position in which, in which I wrote the book. One of your stops along the way was WAVY in Hampton Roads, Virginia, oh, yeah. um, where you got arrested, charged mm-hmm. with conspiracy and illegal interception of oral communications. Yeah. What was that about? Spent the night in jail in the roundhouse in Philadelphia. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. We were doing a story about uh, child abductions. Uh, this is in the early 1980s, mid-1980s. Uh, at that time, at least, and I, I would imagine still true today, most child abductions are by people who who know the child. Usually it's, 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 a, it's a custody dispute between a husband and wife or father and mother. And that was the case here. There was a, a family from the Hampton Roads area, divorce. I believe the husband might have been Middle Eastern, had taken the child to Philadelphia. The expectation was he was going to leave the, the country with, his, with the child. There were very few laws that – that the custodial parent had all the rights, basically. Anyway, so we followed this story up to Philadelphia. I was probably 23, 24 years old, you know, um, thin as a rail. But I knew, you know, my rights as a journalist. And we go to the, the house where the boy was staying with his dad and the housekeeper, and a fight breaks out. And the police are called. Police show up. And, uh, you know, we kind of come from, behind, you know, from standing behind our vehicle with the camera gear and, and the man says, these people, because uh, one of the people we were following had a, uh, was wearing a wireless microphone. There's a little law called interception of oral communication. There are 22 states in the country. We're not allowed to record someone's conversation without their permission. I, I missed that class at Ohio West, and I didn't realize, <laughs> I didn't realize that. And uh, so I didn't know the law, nor, nor did the police. But when this man screaming and his rights have been violated, the police thought, what the hell? We'll just arrest everybody. And he scooped everyone up and said, well, we'll figure it out down at the police station. Well, as fate would have it, a, um, a police officer was shot and killed that same day in Philadelphia, that afternoon. So quickly, the focus, and rightfully so, the police department turned to, to capturing the person who killed their fellow officer. So we were kind of like cast aside and like they kind of lost track of us for, for quite a while. So I spent the night in jail. And I remember being in my jail cell with uh, in an open space with a few other people who had uh, allegedly violated the law. Men of men of some size. And he said, what are you here for? <laughs> and I said, interception of oral communication. <laughs> they looked at me like, okay. And they, and they all got up and moved. They <laughs> Not knowing what that was, but they knew it was contagious. You had some 
time in Orlando and Tampa, mm-hmm. um, one of my former students, a journalism graduate, Eric Deggins, referred to you as the station's go-to guy mm-hmm. in Tampa. Once you were attacked by someone with a baseball bat, yeah. that sounds like a story worth telling again. Yeah. We were doing a story on – there's a series of stories about neighborhoods and the Tampa Police Department. Because of budget cuts, they were putting resources in different places. And so they were relying more perhaps than necessary on community watch groups to do some basic patrolling because of they were focused on uh, violent crimes, responding to violent crimes. So we're doing this story about this neighborhood watch group that had a problem with a drug dealer in their neighborhood, a, 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 an older man who was dealing drugs out of his house. So they weren't like guys with their pants hanging off their butts staying outside. This was a guy who could have been you know, the local grocer guy – uh, engaged in this. So he staked out uh, in a, a, on top of a paint store across from his house to videotape these transactions that happened at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Because I've discovered in my career that most of the great stories I've ever done have always occurred off the clock, right? Either on the weekends, in the middle of the night, but not when I'm supposed to be in the office. So there's a lesson in all that. So anyway, so we're there and we're on the roof of this building. We're videotaping this. And I'm, I'm you know, late 20s by this point. So I, I know everything by this point. And so I'm there with a photographer, a great guy, and we're, we're, we're focused like a laser on this uh, building. And it's, it's like a scene out of the three studios. So we're laying on, on this, on this uh, building that we've researched where we need to be so we can't be seen. We didn't think to move the ladder that got us up on the roof of the building. So this guy had his patrol walking around the neighborhood, right, looking for police, whoever else, noticed this root, this ladder on the back of this building. And he, doing his due diligence, climbed up the ladder and saw these two people with cameras focused on this building. So we're laying on our stomachs. Imagine we're laying on our stomachs. We're watching this guy. And he's tapping on my shoulder. And I'm like, what do you, what do you want? And he's like, I'm, uh, what are you talking about? I'm not touching you. What do you – and I realize he's not tapping me on the shoulder, but the guy who's standing behind me is this baseball bat tapping me on the shoulder like, what the hell are you guys doing? And we end up tussling with this guy. He was the muscle for this drug dealer. Fortunately, he was an older gentleman. There was two of us, and we got, uh, we got the best of him. Which leads me to another question. How do you deal with fear? Laura Logan, when she was interviewed on this program before – she was brutally attacked in Cairo, said it wasn't something that she worried about a great deal and um, then came the attack. Mm. Um, You had some instances in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Mm. How do you deal with that? I'm glad you mentioned Laura. I love myself from Laura Logan. She is – Laura is the real deal and um, has seen things, endure things that that, – that no person should have to. For me, I think, uh, you know, I was raised to believe to those who much is given, much is required. And so I think for journalists, certainly if you want to be a network journalist, if you want to be an international journalist, okay, then you have to manage that. Now, I'm not someone who is, I am not a, no one who knows me would describe me as a cowboy. If there was an explosion outside this studio, I guarantee you, I would not be the first person out there to see what happened. I'd say, so what happened out there exactly? But I had a wonderful uh, colleague at CBS News. Uh, Not long after 9-11, we were going to start sending people to Afghanistan. And I wasn't even sure where Afghanistan was on the map. 
And and I was really nervous about it because like they were killing people and it was violent and and mean and distant and and it seemed like you know a different planet. And I was having some real angst about whether I should raise my hand. And I'd prided myself at that point in CBS News being a good fireman. I'll go anywhere anytime. But this gave me pause. And then and then this this friend of mine said he says you know he says the the Taliban has as much to do with the Muslim religion as the Klan has to do with Christianity. Changed how I saw the world in that moment. And, th- and there's some truth to that. And I remember it took tr- – I can imagine if you were white Jewish reporter and someone said, we're going to send you to Mississippi, to Pearl, Mississippi, to cover the civil rights movement or to Birmingham, Alabama, I'm sure that gave you pause. As much as it might a, a black person, uh, you know, and, and so it took great courage to say, "Okay, I'm gonna go cover it." And how better is our society because journalists have the courage to go to those places? You think about the people, you know, the Ed Bradleys, the Morley Safers, uh, the Dan Rathers, who went to went to Vietnam. Uh, Bob Simon, who's a very young correspondent at the time, it's like, okay, if you want to be. Uh, someone of note of your generation in, in this profession, then when it happens, you got to go. So I thought, okay, like every place else, I'll prepare myself as best I can physically. I'll train hard for it. I'll do my homework. I'll research weapon systems, the cultural differences. I won't take any unnecessary risk. I went with a phenomenal team of people who were more experienced than I was in that kind of work. And, um, you know, in, in my, my faith tradition, people ask you sometimes, are you prayed up? And, uh, and I want to believe that I was prayed up. My, my faith tells me that God won't call me home till it's my time. I remember I, I believed all that. And I thought, OK, now let's test to see if it's true. So, you know, I had an experience in Afghanistan close as I, I, I came, I, I think, to dying knowingly while I was there. And we were in a valley in northern Afghanistan. Long story short, there's a point in this, in this, on this trip where I started crying because I was that afraid. And I closed my eyes, and I just wanted it to go away. And when I opened my eyes, we were in a valley in northern Afghanistan. And I thought, my Lord, whoever wrote the 23rd Psalm must have been in Afghanistan when they wrote it, in that moment, in the valley and shadow of death. And so all these things that I learned about Mother's Knee about faith and the things I saw and read about the civil rights movement and struggle and faith and courage, it didn't mean they weren't afraid. It just meant that they were willing to be there. But in that moment, it struck me that um, if I was going to die in that moment, it was God's will. Nothing, nothing in my background could help me escape that moment. But if it was God's will that I die, that I live, nothing in that environment would take my life. And I, I've often said I've had moments since then when I've been frightened by an explosion or startled by something. But I've never, I haven't been, I haven't been afraid since then. Um, that moment gave me great peace. You've talked a number of instances in this interview about the importance of your faith. Um, it's certainly evident in your book. That's not something that characterizes very many reporters. I think Lester Holt uh, was very happy with the Sunday Morning Today show when they moved the church service that he normally went to from <laughs> right. 9 to 9.30. Do you get pushback on this or people saying, well, how can you be a serious reporter if yeah. faith is so important. You know, I, I do sometimes. And certainly earlier in my career, I struggled with it. I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have talked very openly about it, not in this form, you know, 20 years ago. 
But now I've been a journalist now for about 30 years. I know some of what I know and I know some of what I don't know. And I'm more comfortable with who I am as a man. Um, like there was a point in my career I avoided stories about race because I didn't, I didn't want to be the black reporter sent to cover that event. I'm more comfortable with that. I mean I, I still – it still irks me, the, the uh, necessity to divvy out assignments that way. But I kind of get it. And one of the things I've learned about in my professional life is that oftentimes stories are richer the more you know as opposed to the less you know. And journalism is better when you have skin in the game, when in the case of Laura Logan, you have people who have the courage to go to these bad places and stand on the street and smell and hear and see what's going on. Very different than when you're talking about it from you know Washington or someplace. And so I think oftentimes I don't go there in my professional life day to day in my assignments. Um, but in these settings where people will ask me who I am and what my backstory is, then I feel more comfortable in saying that. I mean because all of us are many things, right? I'm an African-American man. I grew up on the East Coast. I'm left-handed. I'm a bad golfer. I wish I were, was better. I love Big Ten, SEC, sports, maybe not in that order depending on the time of, time of the year. So I am many things. Uh, and part of who I am is my faith. Uh, like, and, and, and I'm, I'm mindful that certainly in our country, most people, most people I come in contact with have some sort of faith-based tradition. Now, I was raised to respect all faiths, but I think it was Yogi Berra who once said, always dance with the one that brung you. And my faith that I learned at my mother's knee is what's brought me to this point. So I'm not ashamed to talk about it. Does your faith affect the way you cover a story such as you were in Indiana in, I don't know, 2001, I guess, when Timothy McVeigh was executed and you were the media representative in yeah. the execution? Do you see that differently because of your faith? I don't think so. As close to him as, as we are right now. I think, you know, just like my faith, my blackness, my being an American, my being from the East Coast, all those things influence how I see the world. I, I think that I am an optimistic person by nature. Part of that stems from my faith. Certainly as, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe that there is a heaven. I believe there is a hell. I hear comments by the former Republican senatorial candidate Richard Murdoch. You know, I, I think I could hear his comments in a variety of contexts that certainly I know people of faith who would say, oh, OK, I absolutely get what he's saying. And I also know people of faith who would say, what? And I know, pe you know people of great intellect who would say, you know, may have their own view. For instance, as a person of faith, I, I, didn't, I didn't think much about my faith. I remember watching McVeigh take his last breath. I was focused on taking my notes. I was focused on uh, getting a sense of the room. And, and I, I explain it this way. I believe as a person of faith, though raised to respect all faiths, and, and, and I believe that I do, that for me, my faith is defined as a search for God's truth for my life. I think as a journalist, my job is a search for truth. So when I was younger, I saw some conflict or some distance between my faith and my work. Now I don't at all. You know, my, my faith is as individual to me as my shoe size. Right. And certainly in, I had this wonderful conversation when I was in Afghanistan. Uh, one of the some of the advice I got from Dan Rather when I went to Afghanistan the first time when Dan was the managing editor of CBS News at the time. He said rules of the road for Afghanistan. 
don't drink the water, don't eat the meat, don't look at the women. Okay? And Dan knows that I travel with my Bible. And he says, don't do that because it's, you know, gets you in trouble. Okay. I thought about it for a while. I have great admiration for Dan then and now. And, uh, but I brought it anyway. And I would wait till wee hours of the morning to, to read my Bible, to do my devotional. And uh, it's just like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm doing my devotional with my headlamp. And I think no one's around. But at some point, I get a sense that someone's watching me. Next day, a couple of guys who are working for us, Afghan men, they confront me. He says, Mr. Byron, we saw you reading a book. It looked like a holy book the way you were treating it. Was it the Quran? thought about lying, right? would have been a safe thing to do. But I thought, you know, if they press me on it, I, I, I can't get beyond the spelling of the book, so I probably shouldn't do that. So I said, I, I was reading the Bible. I apologized. And I said, I meant no disrespect to you or your countrymen. I, the reason I had it out that, that night so I wouldn't have, uh, cause offense, I sincerely apologize if I offended you. Had this long conversation about Christianity versus, versus versus the Muslim faith. Well, because it was a home game for them, I conceded by the end of the day that okay, perhaps you guys are right, perhaps I'm wrong. We'll leave it open for discussion, but I respect your view, and we'll go with that. A couple days later, we're in a in a minor. There's such a thing as sort of a minor firefight where we get sort of a crossfire briefly. And uh, and, every, and, I, and I happened to be listening to uh, some gospel music I had in my headset. And because I'm thinking we're like 20 minutes away from danger when we sort of stumbled upon it. So I'm in the backseat of this pickup truck. I'm jamming to some Christian song. I'm having a good old time. And there are shots fired at our vehicle. So everyone ducks. But I, I don't duck because I don't get what they're kind of, you know, I'm jamming to music, right? And so we get out of the hot spot. And by this time I take off my headset and go, What's, what was that about? And so one of the Afghan guys says, Mr. Byron, Mr. Byron, you are, you, was that bravery? Was that crazy? We were getting shot. You didn't move. You were like laughing. And I said, brother, that's what Jesus will do for you. Make you <laughs> laugh when you should be crying. And he could like, okay. <laughs> and we went on. We're going to close with some more music you've chosen um, by Curtis Mayfield. Mm. Why do you choose that one? Curtis Mayfield is someone, uh, certainly of my older sister and brother's generation, and, and someone of my mother's generation. So it, it, it reminds me of, of times gone by in our nation's history and my family's history. And there's this great line in this old Curtis uh, Mayfield song where he says, it's, it's not original to him, but it was true when he said it, true when it was written, and it's true today. Their freedom's never been free. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Byron Pitts, contributor to the CBS News program 60 Minutes and their chief national correspondent. Byron, thanks for being here. It was a joy. The time flew by. Thank you so much. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. no longer a child is born mother shed tears of joy as baby tests his lungs my dad is not there where he ought to be somewhere in Georgia skinning and shooting craps on his knees another victim born out here in the hood 
And based on statistics, it really ain't all good. Welfare takes the town, and daddy can't sign, and it can't be seen. The family becomes a crime. The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.